0: I'll remind you that we are in a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, and this is a journey through the life of Christ. We're going verse by verse through the life of Christ, but we are doing this in a way that we are harmonizing the Gospels. We're looking at a chronological walk through the life of Christ, and so we've been in John for a while because John is the only one of the Gospel writers that covers the earliest events of Jesus' ministry right after his baptism. The other Gospel writers... Pick it up with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And so we're now jumping over to Luke. We're going to be in Luke verses 14 through 30. The parallel passages for this text are found in Matthew 13 uh, and in Mark chapter 6. So Luke chapter 4 verse 14. Please stand if you would as we read God's word. These words that we're going to read written down by Luke, the doctor traveled with Paul, but these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are authoritative. They are as authoritative as if Jesus were standing here speaking directly to us in the flesh. So let's hear the word of God this morning, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow." And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word We pray now that you would add to the reading of this word your blessing, and that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that you would open up our ears to hear, open up our eyes to see. As this text tells us, Jesus came to open up blind eyes, and there is nothing so blind as one who is spiritually blind. So God, we pray that you'd open up blind eyes this morning. So we thank you for this text. We pray now that you'd be glorified as we walk through it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I've been reading of, of well, actually I say reading. I've been listening to an audiobook. That's reading for me sometimes, all right? I've been listening to an audiobook book of um, Abraham Lincoln. It's a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, if I had to pick a favorite president... It's always either been George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. I know those are like the big two. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like I'm saying John Quincy Adams or something. You know, it's either Abraham or, or um, Washington. And, and so as I was reading this, I'm getting to like Abraham Lincoln even more as I listen to this biography, really enjoying it. But I'm learning some details about the Civil War and, and even the, the mission behind the war, at least for the North at the very outset of the war, was a mission simply to restore the Union. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was very careful not to mention slavery as one of the motives of going to war. It was simply to restore the Union. I think on the South side as well, it it was a going to battle to preserve states' rights, if you will. It wasn't until the war was going pretty bad for the North that Abraham Lincoln had the courage to actually say the real mission, to state the real mission behind the Civil War. Because everyone recognized, even if the Union was preserved, there would still be factions and divisions over the issue of slavery. If you preserved the Union but did nothing with slavery, the problem was still there. And so Abraham Lincoln, um, in 1863, about the time he was going to be doing the Emancipation Proclamation, had a major shift in the mission of the war. Abraham Lincoln was very much a a hands-on type of president when it came to the war. Shifted the mission of the war to include the freedom of slaves, emancipation of slaves. And that changed the whole complexion of the war. It changed what the South was fighting for, and it changed what the North was fighting for. It changed the whole complexion of the war, and it actually gave the moral ground behind the north to continue their their fight and it also gave them the 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 impetus to continue and to actually win the war and it's very interesting as i was listening to that thinking about that how the the clarifying of the mission it was really the mission behind the war from the get go the reason abraham lincoln only talked about preserving the union was for political reasons there were st- still plenty of of northern democrats that supported slavery and he needed them on his side so So he wanted to to push forward this idea that preserving the union was the main reason. But political reasons were eventually trumped by the true reasons, which was that that slavery needed to be dealt with in our nation. And unfortunately, it cost a lot of lives to deal with slavery in our nation. I was thinking about that passage as we come to this passage today about Jesus who is sharing with his hometown Nazarene's um, the, the mission that he has as Messiah. He comes and he, he shares this, this mission, and this mission comes directly out of Isaiah chapter 61. And the reason I was thinking about Abraham Lincoln was because a lot of times we come to this text here where Jesus is, is talking about his mission, and we think the wrong thing. We come to this text and we think that Jesus' mission was primarily a mission of social um, upheaval, to, to overturn the social institutions of the day, to fix the social ills of the day. And a lot of people will use this text to say that that should be the main mission of the church then. It, then it's just to go out and deal with the social ills of our world. But if we look more closely at this, we see the, the mission that Jesus has isn't, isn't primarily dealing with social ills we will see that primarily his mission is a mission to proclaim a message, a message that that defeats not necessarily the the physical ailments listed in this text, but the spiritual ailments that are listed in this text, but also that will eventually bring in a new order and new heavens and a new earth that will deal with all the social ills. But we need to make sure we understand what the mission is here, lest we read this text, and we get off mission as a church. So Luke starts off this, this account here um, of, of Jesus' ministry different than John did, as I already mentioned. He, he jumps immediately to, to Galilee. And it's okay to see that there's differences between the, um, between the gospel writers. I mean, I just said I, I'm reading a biography on Abraham Lincoln. If I were to read a different biography on Abraham Lincoln, it would actually have, it would choose certain things to leave out. and would put in certain things that perhaps this biography isn't. Putting in, and it's okay. So, so sometimes people see the differences between the gospels and they get they get troubled by that. You don't need to be troubled by that. The Holy Spirit divinely inspired what events that each writer needed to write down. And on top of that, we have to, have to understand just as you read a, a, a biography, like I'm reading Lincoln's biography, there are times when the author is just fo- focusing on chronological events. There are other times when the author shifts to a topic. And he may bring out different events from Abraham Lincoln's life that aren't chronological. Same thing when you read the Gospels. It's not necessarily that each Gospel writer is writing a chronological order. Sometimes they're trying to drive home a point, and therefore they may be putting certain events in a different order, not to try to confuse you, but to try to drive home the theme or the point that they're trying to make in their Gospel. So Luke starts off, as I mentioned, here in Galilee. He says that Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, this is one of Luke's themes. Talk about themes and topics. This is one of Luke's themes. Luke is very focused on the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, upon Jesus' ministry. And even in the book of Acts, he's very focused on how the Holy Spirit is guiding the church's ministry. So, so far in Luke, we've seen that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, was at work Number one, in the virginal conception, in chapter 1, verse 35, we see in chapter 2, verse 27, the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' dedication at the temple. In chapter 3, verse 22, we see that the Holy Spirit is involved in Jesus' baptism. Even in chapter 4, verse 1, we see the Holy Spirit is involved in Jesus' temptation. It was the Spirit that drove him out to the wilderness. And now here we see that Jesus begins his ministry of proclamation in the region of Galilee and the Holy Spirit is upon him. The power of the Spirit is upon him. And so as he powerfully moves into that region preaching the gospel, a report goes out about him through all the surrounding country. So as we saw in last week's message as well in John chapter 4, that Jesus was initially very popular a report was going out. Everyone was hearing about Jesus. He was, he was making the headlines. This is, you know, if this was this day and age, he would be the hottest topic on, on Twitter. He would be trending right now. Okay? So at this point in his life, Jesus is, is trending. Everyone's hearing about him. Everyone's excited about Jesus. But as we saw last week, most of that popularity is simply a popularity on a surface level. Luke goes on to say that he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke is showing us that teaching is the primary central ministry of Jesus as he walks through Galilee. Is that He's going into synagogues and he's teaching. Matter of fact, if you look at the pattern here, Jesus, first of all, he goes into the towns. He goes to the synagogue, preaches to the, the Jews. The Jews, you'll see, reject him. And then even in this text today, we see how the gospel isn't going to the Gentiles. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul wasn't creating a new—some people say Paul created a new religion that Jesus didn't— No, Paul just did exactly what Jesus did. He went on mission into new lands doing the exact same thing Jesus did. And so Jesus goes into the synagogues, and he's, he's preaching, he's teaching. And in verse 16, it says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So this is Jesus' hometown. He's coming home. Maybe y'all, y'all can identify with, with going home. You know, that, just those, those warm feelings of seeing people that you hadn't seen in a long time, seeing places you hadn't seen in a long time. When I was a kid, whenever we went back to some place that hadn't been in a long time because we were overseas as missionaries, we'd come back to Kentucky. And I don't know if anybody can relate to this. Everything seems smaller. Every time you come back, everything seems smaller. Your, the house you used to live in seems smaller. Your grandparents seem smaller. Everything seems smaller for some reason. So I don't know if Jesus is having that experience or not. Everything seems smaller here. But anyway, he's coming back home. He's, he, this is his homecoming, if you will. And he's coming back to the people that he knows well, to the synagogue that he knows well. And as was his custom, Luke tells us, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And it was customary in Jesus' day for everyone to stand as the Scriptures were read. You see that in the Old Testament as well. So Jesus stands up to read. He says in verse 17 that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. And for us, they didn't have the the chapter numbers and the verses. Okay, if you want to know where this is in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a. It's half of of verse 2. And, And Jesus leaves out the second half for a reason, by the way. And let me just say this as well. We're not going to get through this passage today. (laughs) Sorry. We're only going to get through the first half of it. I meant to say that early on. So what I just said about him not saying the second half of verse 2 for a reason, you're going to have to wait till next week for that reason. But anyway, so he goes to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a, and he says, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind.'" And to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, everyone there who's listening to Jesus knew that this verse was from Isaiah. They knew their Bible as well. The Jews knew their Bible very well. And everyone knew that this passage was a passage where the messianic servant of God was speaking. So, this is a messianic passage, a messianic prophecy that the Jewish people were looking to see fulfilled. And so we read in Luke four twenty, 20, he, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, sitting was the common posture for teachers. If you, if you look at a Jewish synagogue, there were raised seats all around the edge of the synagogue, and there was a seat in the, uh, one end of the room. It was called the Moses seat, and he would the teacher, the rabbi, whoever was there, and Jesus was the guest preacher this day, would sit down in that seat and then would begin to teach. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him, according to Luke. Now, it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for rabbis to preach and to teach on the Messiah, on the coming of the Messiah. So I'm sure they're all on the edge of their seats. They're all on the edge of their seats here as they are waiting to hear from Jesus, their hometown hero. Remember, he's trending, so he's a hero right now. Their hometown hero, what's he going to say concerning the Messiah? What's he going to say about this great messianic text? And so the next thing he said to them must have blown them away. Matter of fact, I I bet he stops trending about right now. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone there would have known what he was talking about. He was pointing to himself. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right now, what you're hearing is the fulfillment of the Scripture. Right now, this messianic passage has been fulfilled. Or as we might say today, before your very eyes. And that's quite a claim. Jesus is in essence announcing that he, the one who's speaking, speaking to them, is the fulfillment of this text. Now and at first it seems their reaction is pretty good. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So at first it was like, Whoa. And they're marveled by what he's saying. Now, I don't know if Jesus said more than this. If he didn't, this was a very short sermon. And as you read earlier, they turned against him. That's the quickest a congregation has ever turned against a pastor. Right there. I guarantee you. And most pastors last in a church two and a half years. That's, that, that, is, that is a real statistic, by the way. Before they are either ushered out or they quit. But but here Jesus in one sermon one line. Now I don't know. Perhaps perhaps he said more. Um, some think that this is just sort of a summary statement of everything he was saying that day. That may be the case, especially since they, it says that they were marveling at the words he was speaking. So perhaps. That means there was more that he was saying here this morning. But, but in essence, the, the, the main focus, the thesis, if you will, of what Jesus had to say that day was that the scripture of Isaiah 61 was being fulfilled in him. So let us, this morning, let's see and savor this messianic mission that Jesus quotes. This is the mission of the Messiah here from Isaiah 61. Let's see and savor the messianic mission of Jesus this morning. In this passage, we clearly see that the Messiah's mission is to minister to four groups. The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. So I have a question for us this morning. Is this passage, therefore, since it's dealing with the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed, is this passage, therefore, simply a passage about social justice? That we are to go out and help the, the, the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Many in our day argue that the church's primary role should simply be the alleviation of social ills. And this passage in Luke is a passage they oftentimes quote to support that argument. So the argument would go like this. Since Jesus is sending us as the Father sent him, which is John 20, 21. So since Jesus is sending us as the Father has sent him... And since this is his mission That the Father has sent him on Well then we should be trying to rid the world of poverty Free those unjustly held captive Help and heal the physically ill and disabled And fight for the rights of the oppressed That's the argument So so the argument would be That Jesus' mission is primarily One of being a social liberator And thus The church Should primarily be a social liberator But I think a closer look at the text here won't let us go there. At least not as the primary mission of Jesus. So I want us to look closely at this text this morning and and notice a few different things. First of all, look at the verbs that are used in this messianic mission. So Isaiah 61 is the passage Jesus is quoting, but look here in Luke at the verbs. Starting in verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, Okay, so this is what the Spirit's anointing him to do to, here's the first verb, proclaim good news to the poor. He doesn't say to give money to the poor, to proclaim proclaim good news to the poor. Then he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Not go with a sledgehammer and start knocking locks off of jail cells. No, he says to proclaim. So twice now. Proclaim good news to poor, proclaim liberty to captives. And then it says, and recovery of sight to the blind. That phrase just simply borrows the verb from the previous uh, phrase. So that means to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. Now, Jesus did heal many blind people. But it's saying here that his primary mission is to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. So proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. Verse 19 Oh, wait, let me, let me continue right after that in verse 18. To proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is the only verb that isn't proclaim in this whole passage. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I'll explain why here in a second. And then verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So with the exception of to set at liberty, which I, like I said I'll come back to in a minute, Jesus' primary means of carrying out his messianic mission is what? Proclamation. Proclamation is the primary means by which Jesus is going to carry out his messianic mission. Jesus' mission, therefore, is primarily a verbal announcement, a spoken word, a heralded, heralded declaration. That's Jesus' primary ministry is to herald good news. And therefore, what should the church's primary ministry be? To herald good news. Our mission, like Jesus's, is primarily, primarily a mission of proclamation. Proclamation. So the first blank on your notes this morning is simply this. Jesus' mission was a message. Jesus' mission was a message. The fact is, the messianic promise of Isaiah 61 was primarily a mission to proclaim, to speak, to announce, to herald, and to preach a message of deliverance. Now, it is certainly true that Jesus did demonstrate his divine nature through miraculous signs that included such things as healing physically blind people, and those signs were a demonstration of his authority and the inbreaking of his kingdom. But Jesus' ministry was primarily a ministry of proclamation. Luke's already said he was going from synagogue to synagogue doing what? Preaching and teaching. So both Luke 4 and Isaiah 61 highlight Jesus' role as a proclaimer, a proclaimer of a message. Therefore, if that's what's at the center of Jesus' ministry, that's what has to be at the center of our ministry also. The church is first and foremost a proclaiming people. Now that does not mean we don't tend to the social needs of our day. We do, but we get it in the right order. Number one, gospel proclamation. Number two, social action. And if gospel proclamation isn't happening, happening what social action is, we are off target. We've got the mission mixed up. Social action is fine as the secondary effect of the gospel. But the primary thing that we are to be doing is proclaiming, the gospel that's why we're doing we've been doing training in evangelism we want to learn how to proclaim the gospel better now I know I have here in my notes that in my generation in the hip churches of today but really the gray in my beard you know shows you that I'm actually not hip anymore so um the younger generation of churches that are emerging today, it is very hip to say, social action, social action, social action is what drives us. And I'm excited about some of the things you're seeing in those churches, but I'm distressed when I begin to hear that the gospel proclamation is taking a second place to social action. I think this text and Isaiah 61 puts proclamation in the primary driving seat of Jesus' ministry and ours. Secondly, if we go back and we look at the context of both Isaiah 61 and this passage here, and you look at the word poor, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's a word that can, yes, mean literal poverty, but just as with our English word poor, it can have a, a literal meaning or figurative meaning. Right? So in English we say, you know, you poor soul. We don't necessarily mean that they're poverty-stricken, they don't have any money. We just feel like, okay, you know, they're, they're distressed or whatever. But then if we say, you know, he lost all his money and he's poor, we mean he's lost all his money. So the, the, the word can mean both things. Same thing in Jesus' day. Same thing in, in, the, in the Hebrew text in Isaiah 61. But when you look at the overall context of Isaiah 61 and you look at the context of Luke 4, you see here that that more than just physical poverty is in view. There is a a spiritual poverty that the Messiah has come to deal with. And so when you consider the larger context, it helps you see that Jesus is talking more than just about physical poverty. Even look at the example he uses later in this passage in Luke when when he's showing them, how God had worked in Israel in the past. And he gives two examples. The widow that that Elijah ministered to, who was physically poor. But who's the other example? Naaman, a general in the Syrian army. He was not a poor man. But both of these people recognized their spiritual poverty. If you go back and look at the texts, they recognized their spiritual poverty and they came bowing to the Lord and trusting in his word alone to be saved from their situations. And so poverty doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily directly tied to physical poverty. Now, I do think though the scriptures do teach that people who are in physical poverty are sometimes more sensitive to the gospel. I think that's witnessed throughout the church history that a lot of the first people who came into the church were were very poor people that were that came into the body of Christ early on in the early church. And even in we read Jesus saying it's harder for it's hard to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich man to Make it into the kingdom of heaven. So there is an issue sometimes that physical wealth sometimes can prevent us from seeing our, our spiritual poverty. That, that very much is the case sometimes. But primarily Jesus here in this text is speaking of, of a spiritual poverty. Finally, the, the last thing that sort of seals the deal for me when I think here whether or not Jesus is talking about social action or, or he's talking about something different. Is, is simply the fact that though he did heal many blind people, all these other things we'd have no record of him doing. In the, in, so that we would have to say that his messianic mission was a failure then. Because I don't read anywhere where he redistributed any wealth to help out the poor, or that he lifted any political weight off of any people that were oppressed, or that he set any physical prisoners free. Perhaps that's why John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7 When he's in prison, John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends a message to ask Jesus if he's really the one or should we wait for another. Perhaps that's why he was struggling so much because he's reading this in a literal way like so many people do today. And he's waiting for Jesus to come knock down the door of the prison and set him free. I don't know. I don't know what's going through John the Baptist's head at that time. But we have no evidence of Jesus doing any of these other things outside of actually physically healing some blind people. So you'd have to say, if this is strictly speaking of physical realities, then Jesus was a failure during his ministry. So I think we can see from the text that this is primarily a focus here on Jesus' messianic role as Messiah. and And it's primarily speaking of the spiritual realities that man finds himself in. So... I want us to now look more closely. We're going to break down this messianic mission. This is what we're going to do for the rest of this morning today. And then next week, we'll look at the remainder of the passage and how the people react. So as I said, Jesus' mission was a message. But what was the message? First of all, it's a message of good news for bankrupt sinners. It's a message of good news for bankrupt sinners. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news, that's gospel, to the poor. The word here, poor, as I already mentioned, could either be literal or figurative. But to help us understand what the image is conjured up here in the Greek language, it was used to refer to the lowliest of beggars. The lowliest of beggars. One commentator said the word is meant to convey the image of a person cowering in a corner with one hand covering his eyes and another hand extended begging for a gift. That's the the image of poverty here we're to have. It's a lowly... Beggar In the corner, covering his eyes in shame, holding out his hand, seeking a gift. Jesus is saying here that he came to proclaim gospel, good news, to the spiritually destitute, to the spiritually bankrupt, to the spiritually impoverished. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good news are for those that, that see that due to their sinful state, they are empty-handed and bankrupt before God. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day thought they were owed something. They were owed salvation, either because of their heritage or because of how well they had kept the law. They thought they deserved God's favor. They didn't see that they were spiritually bankrupt. The good news are for those who see the truth that we are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to bring to God. We are crouched in the corner with one hand over our eyes, covering our shame, and one hand extended with nothing to offer. Only open and ready to receive. That's the type of hearts that are ready to hear the good news. I'm reminded of a story Jesus told when he said two men went up to the temple to pray and one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like, that, like other men, extortioners, uh, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself... Will be exalted. What a picture of spiritual poverty that story is. One man who physically, a tax collector by the way, was not a poor person, who physically had money, but spiritually was impoverished. And the Pharisee who thought God owed him something. I'm so glad God, I'm, you know, I'm a tither and regular church attender and a front row Baptist. He he thought God owed him something. But God doesn't owe any man anything because we have nothing that we can bring before God and say, look at me. Therefore, this one man who was spiritually poor was ready to receive the justification of God. Sinner, what are you going to bring to God? What are you going to bring to God this morning? What are you going to offer him in exchange for his mercy this morning? What spiritual treasure and accomplishment are you going to lay at his feet? Good works? Sunday church attendance, a clean mouth, good intentions, social justice, your godly wife, your godly family, your ministry. What? What on earth are you going to come and lay before God and say, Look, look what I've accomplished. Nothing. Paul, when he recalled the list of good things in his life, that he was a, 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 a Jew, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, he was a, a, a Pharisee, He sums it all up like this in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ. That's spiritual poverty. Is understanding all these things we try to do to impress God in God's eyes are simply rubbish. So what are you bringing My friends, in order to receive the gospel, you must believe what we sang earlier. I picked Rock of Ages for a reason. Third verse, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Friends, the only thing any of us will be laying at the feet of Jesus are crowns that he purchased by his blood on his cross on behalf of his people for his glory. Social justice might redistribute wealth so that poor, the poor people can be helped. But if that poor person is not given the gospel, he remains in a greater pro- poverty than he could ever have imagined. And he will die eternally destitute. Jesus came to proclaim the good news that sinners like you and I can become co-heirs with him, enjoying all the riches of God, if we will first see how utterly bankrupt we really are. Now, why are we so bankrupt? Why are we so spiritually bankrupt? It's because we are guilty sinners, and as guilty sinners, we are justly condemned. So the second message, second part of the message here, is that it's a message of forgiveness for guilty sinners. The next line here in this passage says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So it's a message of forgiveness, liberty to the captives. My friends, Jesus' mission was a mission of proclaiming liberty to captives, captives like you and I. The word captives here is a word used to refer to prisoners of war. The the word literally means to be captured at the point of a spear. That's what the word means. All men are born prisoners because all men are born rebels against the holy God and at war with God. We are imprisoned by our sin we are under a slave-driving taskmaster named Satan, but we are there willfully, for we are imprisoned due to our own insurrection against the sovereign king of the universe. Romans five tells us that we were enemies of God. And as God's enemies, we deserve the sentence that any insurrectionist deserves, namely death. As I'm reading that that biography of, of Lincoln, boy, if you even began to consider going AWOL from either one of the armies. During those days, it was death. It wasn't, hey, come back, buddy. Let's talk about this. It was, tie him to a tree. We're going to shoot him. And so that's the image for us here is that we 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 were enemies of God, born in sin, born guilty of sin. And all men have sinned and therefore are duly imprisoned, awaiting final judgment. All men are born on death row. Every single person born on this planet has been born onto death row. Awaiting judgment. But Jesus' messianic mission was to break that bondage. Jesus' message was a message that in him, deliverance was now here. How was it here? It was here through the forgiveness of sin. The word liberty here is the same word used in the New Testament for forgiveness. The image being that We are liberated from the sentence of death by being forgiven from our sins. We were guilty, and our guilty sentence wasn't just set aside. It was absorbed by another person. It was placed on another. The Messiah's message was that he was going to be the other person who would come and take our death sentence upon himself and thus set us free, liberate us from the captivity of sin. That was his mission of forgiveness for guilty sinners. Hebrews 2 14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. That's what he came to do. Break us out of our slavery. Romans 6:17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Yes, indeed, those of us who hear the Messiah's message and put our hope in the Messiah alone receive the spirit of adoption as sons, and therefore we cry out, Abba, Father, and we know, as 1 Corinthians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Praise God. Praise be to God that those of us in here who have trusted Christ alone for salvation have been transferred. We've been ransomed out of the dungeon of Satan's dominion in which, in, in which we once freely walked and have now been transferred into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And thus we've experienced a transition, a transition from darkness to light, which is exactly what the next messianic role is all about. Jesus' mission was a message, a message of enlightenment for sightless sinners. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Over and over again, the Bible refers to sinful men as being darkened or being blind. Jesus' ministry was primarily a ministry of opening spiritual eyes. Without Jesus opening our spiritual eyes, we can comprehend no spiritual truths of God. Let me say that again. Without Jesus opening our spiritual eyes, we can comprehend no spiritual truths of God. We are born blind, unaware of anything spiritual, unable to see the way forward. Spiritual blindness is what man is born with, and it exists for a variety of reasons. First of all, all are naturally born blind. That's the state of man. Psalm eighty two five they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Romans 121 for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, so there's a natural blindness that we all have. But secondly, some are judicially blind. There is a judicial blindness that God brings upon people as well. John 4, twelve forty, He has, it's God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. This is a judicial judgment of God that brings, up, brings further blindness upon people. Isaiah 29.10, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. So there's natural blindness, there's judicial blindness, and there's satanic blindness. Satan is actively trying to blind the eyes of men in this world. 2 Corinthians In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But now Jesus has come, the Messiah has come with an eye-opening message, an eye-opening message, the message of how the good news makes spiritually poor people rich, how it makes spiritually captive people free, and how it opens up the eyes of spiritually blind people so that they can see the truth and live. Our message is not medical teams to go help blind people. Not, there's not, nothing wrong with that. Or medical remedies for physical ailments. There's nothing wrong with that. Nor is our message to go out and try to miraculously heal blind people. Our message primarily is a proclamation that there is a deadlier blindness than you could ever imagine, and the Messiah has come to open your eyes. Social justice might help alleviate the devastation of physical blindness, but if that person is not given the gospel, he remains in a greater blindness, and he will die and be cast into utter darkness forever and ever. In Paul's recounting of his conversion, you may remember this from Acts 27, when we preach through Acts, he recalls the Lord Jesus telling him, Uh, in regards to his mission to the Gentiles, he says this, this is Jesus' words to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Church, our mission is a mission of healing spiritually blind people, not physically blind people. For men in their sin are spiritually impoverished, imprisoned, and sightless, and they need the hope of the gospel. Finally, Jesus' mission was a message, and it was a message of freedom for condemned sinners. The, the final phrase here, is, it says, to set, li- set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, this is the only time Isaiah doesn't use the word proclaim, the verb proclaim. And instead, he says, to set at liberty. I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you may notice in your footnotes in your Bible that at this point, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Jesus, for some reason, chooses to insert Isaiah 58:6 right here as he's reading through Isaiah 61. So I'm not sure why he did that. Perhaps he's trying to draw a parallel. Perhaps he's using Isaiah 586 to comment on Isaiah 61. But regardless, Jesus chooses to put Isaiah 58:6 here, and therefore there's a different verb used here. But also, I think the verb change helps us see the result of the proclamation. Namely, that men are set free from the oppression of sin once they receive this message. Once they hear the message and receive the message, they are set at liberty. It's the same word used before. The word liberty also means forgiveness. So this is the the forgiveness being put into action. The forgiveness being put into motion It's actually stepping out of the prison. The word oppressed usually refers to one who's overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by life, by illness, by troubles, by sin. The KJV uses the word bruised here instead. The word literally means to be crushed, to be broken, or to be shattered. The image here is that sinners are under a heavy weight, a weight of condemnation and trouble brought on by our sin. And that weight, that burden of condemnation is crushing the sinner. But the Messiah, in his mercy and totally by his grace, pulls us out from under that weight. By forgiving our sins. So the message has been proclaimed. We have believed it in faith. And thus we've been pulled out by grace from underneath the weight and the condemnation of sin. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Matthew 11.28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What grace in those verses to know that the weight has been lifted off of our shoulders. The Messianic mission was a message, a message that poor sinners can become heirs in the kingdom of God. A message that those enslaved to sin can be emancipated. A message that blind sinners can now see vivid spiritual realities. A message that those who feel crushed under the weight of condemnation can now be rescued. And all of this has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And that's what we proclaim too. We proclaim that all these things are true in Christ For he has made it happen by his finished work on the cross. So we can say, as Jesus does at the end of this Isaiah passage, we can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is referring to Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. That was the year that came once every 50 years when all the debts were canceled. And all the all the property was returned to its original owners. And all slaves were to be set free. Jesus is saying that in him, in him the year of jubilee has come. He is the jubilee. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing is what Jesus is saying, including the year of jubilee. He's not promising a social utopia yet to come. He's saying, I am here, I'm the Messiah, and in me all these things happen. Have been accomplished, for the Lord's favor is upon me. All that the jubilee pointed to and more has been realized in Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And all those who by faith are united to him, who turn from their sin and turn to him alone, experience the jubilee. We've been set free from our debts. We've been given property that's heavenly. And guess what? We are no longer slaves because we are in Christ Jesus, our jubilee. He is our jubilee. The question is, will you believe? As we'll see next week, those in Nazareth, well, they liked part of the message. You see, pastors usually counter this. There's some parts of the message people like to hear, and some parts of the message they don't want to hear. Next week, we'll get to the part they didn't want to hear, and we'll see that they didn't believe. What about you, friend? Do you want to know the Lord's favor? Well, then believe what Jesus has said that these scriptures have been fulfilled in Him. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ alone. Turn away from your sin. Recognize your spiritual poverty. Turn to Him alone for salvation. For today is the favorable time. Today is the day of Jubilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we close this time of corporate worship, Lord, I don't even like to use that word sometime, close, because worship is an ongoing outflow of a believer. It should be happening all the time, but as we close this time of gathering together to worship together, I pray, Lord, that you would just use this time of response for people bring offerings and prayer requests that if there be anyone in here who has heard this message this morning and has heard Jesus' proclamation that he has come to set free those who are spiritually trapped and those who are spiritually blind, Father, that you would stir up their heart because we know that blind people can't see anything that Jesus is saying unless eyes are opened. The Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd open up eyes here this morning that people would see and believe. And for those of us in here who are believers, let's just savor. Let's just enjoy who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and keep thinking about that. Because the moment we stop fixating our minds upon what Christ has done, Father, we know that's the moment we'll begin to stray. And we'll begin to think that things of the world look pretty attractive. So God, I pray that you keep our hearts We're so prone to wander. Oh, we're so prone to wander. Keep our hearts. Draw us to yourself. Make us into the people you want us to be. Receive all glory in this time of response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand if you would and let's sing about the power of the cross as we close this morning.